Welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. Today I speak with Dr. Richard Solomon about his book, The Buddhist Literature of Ancient Gandhara, an introduction with selected translation, published by Wisdom Publications. The Gandharan Buddhist texts are the oldest Buddhist manuscripts ever discovered. Richard discusses his pioneering research on these fascinating texts, how the then-obscure Gandhari language was deciphered, the historical context from which these texts emerged, and the Gandhari influence on other parts of the Buddhist world. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Richard, thanks for coming on the podcast. Okay, glad to be here. Uh, what was the inspiration behind this book? What audience was it written for? Um, the book was intended to what I call mainstream the project and the material that I've been working on for over 20 years, that is the uh, Gandharan manuscripts. Uh, I and my collaborators have published uh, a large number of uh, books and articles, but mostly of a highly technical nature for academic specialists and philologists and so forth. And I was also interested in making this material more available, more comprehensible to a wider audience, including academics, non-academics, any what are just called the Buddhist audience, broadly speaking. All right. And what exactly are the Gandharan Buddhist manuscripts? Uh, Okay. Um, This is a type of manuscript that has uh, only been discovered in the within the last 20 years. Uh, they come from the region that an, in antiquity was called Gandhara, which corresponds approximately to northern Pakistan and eastern Afghanistan in modern geographical terms. Uh, and these manuscripts date from uh, between approximately the 1st century BC to the 3rd century AD. And they're the literature of uh, a major aspect of Buddhism in antiquity, that is Gandharan Buddhism. That Gandharan Buddhism was previously known uh, to academics and I think other people from other uh, manifestations, mostly um, the famous school of Gandharan sculpture, which is seen in major museums all over the world. Um, and also least among specialists, from Buddhist inscriptions, uh, especially inscriptions on um, statuary and on reliquaries and uh, other objects, stone and metal objects. But the literature of this aspect of Buddhism, this um, regional manifestation of Buddhism, was virtually unknown until, as I said, about 20... uh, 22, 23 years ago, uh, there was one exception, which was a manuscript that was discovered in 1893, I believe, uh, but not in Gandhara, in uh, Bhutan, which is in in Central Asia, in what is now part of the Xinjiang region of China. Uh, And that was the only manuscript of this type that is uh, of the Gandharan type uh, meaning basically that it's written in the Gandhari language, which I can talk about later. Um, but this manuscript was totally unique and was uh, from a, a rather distant region from Gandhara, so its, um, its significance was unclear for literally a hundred years. And almost exactly a hundred years later uh, was discovered uh, the first 
large collection of manuscripts of the same type. Uh, this is the so-called British Library Collection, uh, which consists of 28, I think, scrolls of a similar type. So at that point, it became clear that uh, there was a corpus, a large, and what now turned out to be a very large corpus, a body of um, textual material from Gandharan Buddhism, uh, of which previously only this one sort of oddball text had been known, and its significance was uh, quite unclear. And how were these texts discovered exactly? That, unfortunately, we don't really know. Uh, the problem, and it's a serious problem, is that virtual all of, virtually all of these manuscripts uh, were found or were purchased on the antiquities market, uh, and the actual background of them, in most cases, is pretty murky. Um, the uh, we suspect that there are two main sources. Uh, one is the sort of the eastern edge of uh, Afghanistan around what's now Jalalabad, uh, and others from Bamiyan, which is farther to the west in Afghanistan, uh, which is where the uh, famous uh, Buddha, gigantic Buddha statues stood until they were destroyed by the Taliban in 1995, I believe. Um, so unfortunately, uh, we don't have archaeological or in most cases even geographical context for these manuscripts, which is a, a big loss. Um, my dream is that someday manuscripts of this type will be found in a proper controlled archaeological context. But given the unsettled situation in that part of the world, that doesn't seem to be about to happen. And, and do we have any idea why these texts were originally buried or, or why they were buried in the first place? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question and somewhat controversial. Uh, I've had, I've, I've written some opinions about that and some other people have agreed or disagreed with those opinions, but I'll, I'll just say a few words about it. Um, they were, as you say, buried. Um, the, the typical situation in which they're found, again, as far as we know, is that uh, they're found in uh, clay pots or in one case is apparently in a, a stone uh, kind of a stone box and apparently these objects especially these clay pots were buried in or probably on the uh, just on the outer edge of Buddhist monasteries uh, in ancient Andhara. the my theory my primary theory uh, is that these were uh, um, manuscripts were buried in a, a ritual fashion. Uh, and in some cases, uh, it seems that the manuscripts were buried because they were worn out, old, damaged, used up, uh, and that they were being ritually buried um, in actually in a way that's analogous to the way that the remnants of the bodies of uh, Buddhist monks were buried. Uh, as uh, kind of sacred sacred objects, and uh, in, in a sense, the, uh, a Buddhist monk and a Buddhist manuscript are both uh, what can be called dharma dharas, that is, bearers of the dharma, and so they would be disposed of in analogous ways. Uh, on another level, this is uh, quite 
parallel to cultural phenomena that are known in other parts of the world, actually in quite a few other parts of the world. The best known example of that is the um, Jewish tradition of the Geniza, uh, according to which uh, books, uh, say old Bibles, Torahs, uh, and other religious texts uh, would be ritually buried in a cemetery. And this still goes on communities all around the world today. Um, this, uh, this theory is not beyond controversy, I have to say, and it doesn't explain the whole, uh, it doesn't explain the entire situation because there are cases where um, the manuscripts are clearly not old and damaged. There's uh, one group of manuscripts in which uh, it's pretty clear that they were actually buried when brand new and actually apparently even composed in order to be buried. Um, so my interpretation of that kind of situation uh, is that this is um, a kind of merit-making exercise and possibly specifically with the intention uh, of what I call uh, informally dharma insurance, uh, that these were buried in order to um, uh, guarantee the survival of the dharma into the far future, uh, because a very prominent theme in Buddhist literature is what are called dharma anxiety, the uh, concern that the dharma will, forgotten, will, be, will be forgotten. And in fact, the Buddha himself said, or is believed to have said, predict that in fact, the Dharma will actually disappear within a certain number of centuries or millennia, the number varies in different sources, but the principle is the same. So um, my theory, and it's really only a theory, is that these buried, fresh, buried, brand new manuscripts were there to, to uh, ensure that the Dharma would not disappear and completely, be completely forgotten in our future. Mm. And so I guess that uh, some of the texts that were found were in okay shape and some of the older texts weren't put in, in pristine condition in the first place. So did this pose a challenge for deciphering the texts? Oh, yes. Uh, challenges. We have many. Um, all of the manuscripts are, to some extent, uh, damaged. So even the ones that I referred to a few minutes ago, the ones that were apparently brand new or buried, they're not brand new now, uh, and they're in varying conditions. Uh, a few of them, and this is very much the overall the exception, um, we now know, I want to say, several hundred examples of these manuscripts. Um, there are a very small number which are largely intact. There's, there are none that are 100% intact, but there are a handful that are maybe 90% complete and legible. Um, but that's very much the exception, and most of them are very much fragmentary. Um, the difference seems to be, well, for example, particularly this case um, in which the a set of manuscripts, about, uh, I think, 24 manuscripts were buried when brand new. Uh, the ones that are best preserved uh, in two, two or maybe three cases, almost completely preserved, were the ones that were on top. So in other words, these things, as I mentioned before, were 
placed inside clay pots and buried. Mm-hmm. So uh, the manuscripts that are on top are usually in very good condition. The ones that are on the bottom have been uh, compressed and in most cases have just disintegrated. Um, by the way, uh, I didn't say most of the manuscripts that I'm talking about were written on birch bark. Uh, and birch bark is, when new, very flexible and tough and strong and durable. When 2,000 years old, it's extremely fragile. So even the weight of the other manuscripts on the scrolls on top of the, the lower scrolls uh, brushes them. Some cases we just have a hopeless mess of fragments. And what script were these documents written in? What language were they written in? Okay, script and language. I can talk about that at length. That's, uh, how I Please feel free. <laughs> that. Um, kind of my, my uh, comfort zone. Um, the, <clears throat> the script is called Karoshti. The language is called Kandari. So, um, and... There's a, some flexibility. Sometimes they're referred to as the Karoshti documents. Sometimes they're referred to as the Gantari documents. And non-specialists get confused about this because um, uh, it seems to imply that there's some difference. But in fact, those are interchangeable terms. Uh, the Gandhari language is always written in the Karoshti script. The Karoshti script is almost always used to record the Gandhari language. So almost comes to virtually the same thing. Um, Roshti script is the script that was that originated and was used in the Gandhara region and in some surrounding regions. The first example, uh, the first specimen we have of it is from the time of Ashoka, the Ashokan rock edicts, which date to about the middle of the third century BC. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the Roshi script uh, is very different from all, all of the other Indian scripts. Uh, let me just briefly back up and explain that. In, in ancient India, there were two main scripts. One was Karoshti, which was regional script of the Northwest, that is Dandara. And the other was Brahmi, which was the script which was used everywhere else in India and which is uh, the parent of uh, virtually all of the modern scripts of India. Roshti died out in around the third or early fourth century AD and has no descendants. Uh, another, another way it's different is that Brahmi is written from left to right, like all of the modern derived Indic scripts, uh, whereas Karoshti is written from right to left, like the Semitic scripts, like Hebrew and Aramaic and Arabic. Um, Roshi script is believed by most experts to be derived from Aramaic script. And I, by the way, I agree with that, but there are some people who have some doubts about it. It's it's a pretty clear derivation. Um, the Aramaic script has a long and interesting and complicated history. It originated in essentially what's now uh, part of Syria, uh, and through accidents of history, really, it spread out over far into many parts of the world, including into Asia, as far as the, the borderlands of India. So apparently what happened is that sometime before the time of Ashoka, which are the earliest specimens, 
uh, much before that uh, the Aramaic script was tweaked or adjusted or adapted to represent Indian languages, which involved adding a fair number of characters since uh, Indian languages have more consonants than Semitic languages like Aramaic. Um, but that's all pre pre-documented period, uh, but it's pretty clear that's what happened. So that became the script used to represent the local language of the Northwest part of the subcontinent. And that local language was um, Amhari. So uh, let me say two words about that. Um, Mandhari is, uh, I would say, we could call it a daughter of Sanskrit and a sister of Pali. But what that means is that it belongs to the language family called Indo-Aryan, of which the early specimens are Sanskrit and related dialects, and the derivatives are Pali, various Prakrit dialects, um, and the um, and among others, Gandhari. Um, so, Gandhari language, before the discovery of these documents, was, I would say, a partially known language. We knew it uh, primarily from inscriptions uh, of the type that I mentioned a little bit earlier. We have now um, many hundreds of uh, Buddhist inscriptions. Um, and those have been studied since the 19th century. Um, the Kuroshi script, uh, I'm just backing up for a minute, was uh, deciphered in between about the 1830s and the 1860s on the basis of uh, the inscriptions of Ashoka and also on the basis of um, mostly from coins of the Indo-Greek kings where uh, their king, their coins were bilingual, so on the front they would have the name and titles of the king in Greek, and and back on the reverse, on the back side, they would have the same text in uh, the Gandhari language and Kharosthi script. So that was our uh, Rosetta Stones that um, revealed uh, the language uh, and the script. But... Um, what that meant is that we had in the Gandhari language a limited knowledge. We still have a limited knowledge, but it's much less limited now since we found the manuscripts. Um, we have these coins which have a very limited vocabulary, name of the king, his titles, and so forth, uh, maybe his father's name. Uh, and from the inscriptions, uh, most of which are fairly short and kind of stereotyped uh, contents. Um, so when it came to uh, studying these new manuscripts, uh, we had a good basis to start with, but we had a lot of problems and questions, uh, new, new vocabulary and new expressions, and many of them have been figured out. Some of them uh, are still not still not understood. Um, the Gandhari, as I said, is closely related to Sanskrit and to Pali and to other pre-modern Indian languages. And of course, that provides all kinds of clues uh, in determining, uh, figuring out difficult or obscure words or difficult passages mm -hmm. and so forth. But it doesn't solve all of the problems. And one of the 
real problems, but also really interesting things about the Gandhari language is that it never went underwent the kind of standardizing process that Sanskrit and Pali uh, and languages like English and French and Latin and Greek have undergone in their histories, uh, which is to say a, a process not so much a linguistic as a historical and social process, according to which a, a standard form is established as the correct form, formal written language. English also, uh, which was done by the dictionary makers in the uh, previous centuries. That never happened in Gandhara. It would have happened, in my opinion, uh, had Gandhara considered, continued to be a great center of Buddhism as it was in antiquity. It, but uh, as history would have it, uh, Buddhism withered and gradually died out in the Northwest. So it didn't become uh, its Buddhism, Gandharan Buddhism and its literature didn't become canonized and standardized and formalized the way Pali and Sanskrit uh, Buddhist literature was. So the upshot of this is Gandhari is what I call language in the rough, as opposed to the uh, smooth, regularized, polished languages like Sanskrit. Um, and what that means specifically is that it's kind of like English before the standardization of modern, um, modern orthography. Uh, the same word as in old English texts, uh, I mean, pre-modern English texts, uh, can be spelled two or three or many different ways, and that happens all the time in Gandhari. Um, for instance, the word for and has, I think, 10 or 11 recorded different spellings, a single monosyllabic word. Uh, so that's just an example of the kind of peculiarities and problems and uh, interesting kinks and quirks of the Gandhari language. And so when you discover these texts, you've uh, this this language Gandhari is only partially attested. We have an understanding of this language from a handful of sources. Uh, you said the the language itself is highly variable because it's unstandardized. So there's many different spellings. So when you first saw these texts, did you think this was an insurmountable puzzle to to figure out? And if so, how did you actually start to decipher the texts? Um, okay, good question. Um, this uh, this all started in I, I believe 1995 when uh, the British Library purchased the first group of these manuscripts, uh, 28 scrolls, and um, I was asked I was called in to um, examine and evaluate these manuscripts. Um, this was mainly on the basis of the fact that I edited and published a lot of uh, of the. Buddhist inscriptions previously in uh, Buddhist inscriptions in Gandhari language. Um, so uh, I went over there in 95 and had a preliminary look. First thought was that, uh, oh, this is going to take me a long time. Well, the whole thing grew and grew and grew in volume and in character, and now it's, it turns out it's going to take a great many people a very long time to work out all of these. Um, but uh, st the starting point was 
Well, I, I focused on some of the better preserved, clearer, better preserved, more legible uh, manuscripts. Uh, and uh, first, just looking for familiar words. Uh, and even that was not so easy at the beginning. Uh, one reason is that in, in this language, uh, word divisions are not indicated. It's just everything written continuing writing. Uh, so even picking up the words is, is uh, something you have to work on for a step. Um, so I went looking for familiar words and uh, particularly for, uh, I, I looked for repeated patterns, which are often very helpful in this kind of work. And I found a couple of texts had uh, repeated lines or repeated phrases or repeated verses. Um, and then those things are easier to locate and look up. I, when I say look up, I mean looking for parallels, similar texts in Ali, Sanskrit, other languages, Chinese, occasionally Tibetan. And this is going on uh, in the mid-90s before we have all the uh, search tools that we have nowadays. Um, so I'm still working uh, from dictionaries and printed concordances and so forth. Um, uh, but the first uh, breakthroughs were two, uh, two texts where I found familiar wording and was able to locate parallels in one case in Pali, in the other case in Sanskrit. And uh, then by comparing... I, I, for instance, uh, you know, there would be words like uh, that were not at all obvious in the Gandhari form, but I could see where they fit in the Sanskrit or Pali. Then I could make the connection, and then that tells me something about the differences or peculiarities of the Gandhari language with regard to a particular word or a particular sound correspondence with the known languages, and then building up from those clues one by one. Now, choosing my words carefully, have a much better knowledge of the Gandhari language than we did 20 years ago, but we do not have a complete uh, complete knowledge. There is still a question. And let's, let's step back for a moment and talk about the general context of, of Gandhara. I think many armchair Buddhists and non-specialists might actually be surprised that at one time Buddhism flourished in, in Central Asia. Could you talk about how Buddhism came to ancient Gandhara uh, in the first place? I know what you mean uh, when I uh, tell people, non-specialists, non uh, that these are Buddhist manuscripts from Afghanistan uh, that raises eyebrows right then and there, and uh, except for people who remember about the uh, the Bamiyan Buddhists in Alibaba, uh, um, most people find it a little surprising or weird that Afghanistan was in antiquity a, a Buddhist country, but it was, and in fact, it wasn't. It wasn't a some sort of obscure outpost of Buddhism. It was one of the major centers of Buddhism. Of course, it wasn't one of the original centers of Buddhism, and I think your question implied that. Uh, Buddhism uh, originated quite far off in the northeastern part of India, many, many hundreds of miles from uh, the Gandhara region. Uh, but, of course, Buddhism spread in its early centuries around India and South Asia, 
Um, it appears from the limited data we have from about the early period, it would seem that uh, Buddhism spread to the Gandhara region in the time of uh, King Ashoka. I think I mentioned before the earliest documents that we have. Um, the relevant documents are the rock inscriptions of Ashoka in the middle of the third century BC. We don't not really know if there was any prehistory to Buddhism, but we know that that was the beginning of the implantation of Buddhism in Gandhara. Uh, and we know beginning around the first century, the late first century BC, uh, we come, we start having a lot more knowledge, information about uh, Buddhism, Gandharan Buddhism. Um, we have uh, inscriptions, uh, artworks, and uh, archaeological remains beginning in that period and becoming very abundant in, I would say, between the first and the third century AD was the golden era of uh, Buddhism in Gandhara. And that can be explained historically on the basis of what was going on politically in that part of the world, which was uh, at this point in history, as, by the way, at many points of Indian history, there were a series of invasions of uh, nomads from Central Asia, uh, generally called the Scythians and the Kochanas and other uh, Central Asian groups, who filtered in through um, the Khyber Pass and other uh, passes in the area into Gandhara proper, which is now uh, northern Pakistan and established uh, various kingdoms and eventually the great Kushana Empire in the 1st to 3rd century AD. And these invaders um, typically and apparently very enthusiastically embraced Buddhism. Uh, and that can be explained on one level uh, by as a way of legitimizing and nativizing uh, their rule over the indigenous Indian population. Uh, it can be explained on another level uh, by the fact that Buddhism is in a universalist religion, which is uh, happy to accept followers and converts, uh, regardless of their nationality and so forth. So what happened, for whatever reason, these new empires in the Northwest became uh, very generous and enthusiastic patrons of, um, of Buddhism, and uh, um, supported Buddhist monasteries uh, with uh, very generous donations. Uh, and in that period, Gandhara became one of the uh, major centers of Buddhism uh, in throughout the Buddhist world in general. Um, that all came to an end or began to decline uh, after the fall of the Kushan Empire in the third century. Um, I often imagine, try to imagine what would have happened if uh, Buddhism had not declined in Gandhara, and would have uh, remained one of the great centers of, of Buddhism. Uh, and in that case, we would have all of these texts neatly preserved and edited and standardized and formalized like the Pali Canon, and I wouldn't be tearing my hair out over these obscure words, but that's not the way it turned out. 
And so you talk about how Gandhara wasn't just a geographical outlier in the Buddhist world, it was actually the center of Buddhism in the ancient world. Do we see any sort of Gandhari legacy in in later periods of Buddhism or in modern expression of Buddhism? Well, yes. Um, uh, by the way, I, if I said the center, I didn't mean I, I, what I said or meant to say that Gandhara was one of the major centers of Buddhism in the South Asian world at the time we're talking about. Um, there is no direct legacy of Gandharan Buddhism. Uh, texts were literally forgotten, lost, lost and forgotten until recently rediscovered. Um, the cult, local culture changed uh, entirely. It became primarily Hindu in the succeeding centuries, and then later uh, became entirely Muslim. Um, so, and, um, you know, when I travel in that part of the world, you tell people it was part of the Buddhist world. They are surprised often, to say the least. Uh, but there is uh, another angle, uh, which is quite important, uh, because uh, it's now becoming clearer. In fact, I think it's now indisputable that Gandhara was the, what I call the springboard for the spread of Buddhism to other parts of Asia. Uh, specifically, what happened is that um, these these um, central uh, these nomadic empires had connections of various kinds with what is now Central Asia. And what I'm referring to mostly there is, again, the region of Xinjiang, which is the northwest edge of the modern PRC. Um, so that area became Buddhist in the period that we're talking about, and that in turn led to the spread of Buddhism into China and eventually into that, into Korea and into Japan. Um, what happened, or what we know about, uh, is that um, a lot of scholars have studied the earliest Chinese Buddhist texts, that is to say, the Buddhist sutras and other Buddhist texts that were translated into Chinese in beginning in about the middle of the second century, earliest specimens that we have. Um, and uh, several decades ago, a few scholars noticed that the way that Indian names or Indian terms were rendered into Chinese, uh, that is by way of transliteration, uh, often in these early translations didn't correspond to the forms uh, uh, that we we're familiar with from Sanskrit and Pali, but in fact corresponded more closely with the corresponding forms of the words in Gandhari, uh, that is the Gandhari language as then known from inscriptions and so forth. Um, so this uh, led to something that became known as the Gandhari hypothesis, uh, according to which the early translations, or at least some of the early translations, were not based on Sanskrit originals, which was the previous assumption, uh, but were based on Gandharan originals. So this is something that has been was developed, I think, in the 1930s and so forth. Um, but of course, at that time, 
the Gandhari, Gandhari original texts were simply a hypothesis, something that didn't exist. Uh, when Gandharan Buddhist literature was rediscovered beginning in the 1990s, ongoing still today, uh, the Gandhari hypothesis uh, became something more grounded in a reality. And uh, the situation is still a little bit complicated, but basically uh, we have a, f a few cases where there are really clear and direct correspondences between uh, Gandhara texts that we now know and early Chinese uh, Buddhist translations. So the implications of this, I mean, I'm just talking about texts and languages and manuscripts, but the implications of this is that Chinese Buddhism, early, the earliest manifestations of Buddhism in China came from, or at least were largely influenced by missionaries, if I can use that term, uh, who were coming from the Gandhara region and uh, bringing manuscripts in Gandhari language, which were then translated into Chinese. Uh, so uh, you could think of, I have used the term uh, springboard uh, for the spread expansion of Buddhism into East Asia with regard to Gandhara. And then let's talk about the content of the texts themselves. What texts are there within the Gandhara manuscripts and how many individual compositions are there in general? Um, it's hard to give exact examples because we're dealing with uh, fragments and complex situation. Um, estimates have been made. I don't remember the exact numbers, um, but the number of different texts is, well, in the hundreds, in the low hundreds. Um, the number of uh, fragments, again, depending on how you define a fragments, is in the small or, or large hundreds. Um, what kind of texts? All kinds of texts. Um, for a practical um, purposes, uh, I like to divide them into two types of texts, uh, not in terms of genre, but in terms of their uh, status, our knowledge of them. There are paralleled text and unparalleled text. By paralleled, I mean texts which have uh, um, direct, more or less direct parallels in Sanskrit, Pali, Chinese, etc. So, for instance, uh, we have manuscripts of many sutras. So I don't know the number of hands, several, several dozen at least sutras. For instance, one that comes to mind is the Sramanyapala Sutra, which is, I mentioned that is a very well-known text in Sanskrit, Pali, etc., many other versions. So we have uh, many dozens of uh, sutra texts. Uh, we have uh, very little in Vinaya uh, texts. I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of the three main divisions, you know, the th so-called three baskets of Buddhism, uh, that is uh, Sutra, Vinaya, and Abhidharma. Uh, Vinaya texts are very minimally recorded. Uh, the third category, Abhidharma, is uh, relatively well recorded, but in a more complicated way. The Abhidharma uh, is a more fluid category in Buddhist literature. By fluid, I mean the different schools or regions of Buddhism will have 
very different Abhidharma literatures. They're, the sutra literature tends to be relatively stable. Abhidharma literature uh, is quite different in the different schools. So uh, most of the Abhidharma texts we have, I think all of the Abhidharma texts that we have, uh, no, most of them uh, are without parallel in uh, other literatures. Uh, and then we have, so we have a great deal of literature, uh, the Abhidharma and other genres, uh, which have uh, no no parallel, no direct parallel elsewhere in literature. So this is elsewhere in Buddhist literatures. So this is um, uh, what we would call the local literature uh, of Gandhara. Uh, and this opens up uh, a whole new, conception of uh, what uh, some scholars, uh, for instance, Peter Skilling, a famous Buddhist scholar, refers to as many Buddhisms, plural. And of the of the parallel texts, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to mention two other points while I remember. Um, sure. One is uh, another entirely, uh, another very interesting new development is the discovery of Mahayana texts in uh, among Gandharan literature. Um, previously, uh, and previously, I mean, until the last few years, um, we were finding mostly non-Mahayana, what isn't a mainstream Buddhist literature. Uh, some years ago, and more recently, very recently, several more discoveries have been made of Mahayana uh, texts, uh, which is a, quite a surprising and uh, exciting new development. And most of these haven't been published yet, but they will be published shortly. Um, the origin of the Mahayana, both in terms of uh, its period, its location, and its uh, its doctrines, has been uh, a, a huge mystery in the history of Buddhism. Uh, so these uh, Mahayana texts, we now know of 10 or a dozen, I think, uh, 11 uh, examples of Gandharan sutras in uh, of Mahayana sutras in Gandhari. So this is a uh, exciting development. And so you said that uh, there are many documents that um, that fell within the categories that we see in the canons that still exist today, uh, except for maybe the the Vinaya, uh, which you said was was very limited. Um, can we speak of a Gandhari canon? Did such a thing exist? Do you think? Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I've pretty much c- uh, uh, committed myself uh, to the concept, the term Gandhari canon or Gandharan canon. Um, I think we have a sufficiently large and diverse body of uh, manuscripts, of Buddhist manuscripts, uh, that we can assume that it well, it's still the tip of an iceberg. I mean, whatever we have now, and it's several hundred texts, uh, but it's still undoubtedly a fr- only a fraction of what there actually was. Um, and I think that can be uh, called can be pretty safely labeled a canon, uh, with the the proviso that this is what I call canon with a small c, as opposed to canon with a capital C. Uh, Canon with a capital C is a strictly defined, uh, what's usually called a closed canon, uh, in which 
some authoritative body, a council of elders uh, that are uh, definitively and authoritatively declared these are the holy books and these other ones aren't. So that's where we get, for instance, the Bible and the New Testament. Um, that uh, process probably never happened in Gandhara for the same reason that the all of this literature dis, uh, disappeared, uh, namely that uh, history didn't develop. Uh, history intervened and prevented that stage of development. So I think there was a canon of the small C type, meaning a body of literature that were, was recognized by the people who learned it, wrote it, copied it, was recognized as authoritative, true, um, in, in Buddhist terms, that it would be considered as Buddhavacana, the words of the Buddha. Um, but it, we have no evidence that it was ever strictly fixed and recorded um, and, and standardized and defined in the way that, for example, the Pali Canon is uh, defined, a canon with a capital C, um, uh, in a uh, form in a scope that was specifically defined at a particular historical period. Uh, I, I like to think of the Gandharan case as really analogous to the um, to the Dead Sea Scrolls situation. Um, in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have uh, manuscripts of nearly all, or at least fragments of nearly all the books of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. Uh, but we also have um, many other texts which are, might be called paracanonical or semi-canonical or possibly canonical. Um, so that um, it's a similar situation in which the canonical material was all there, but not clearly defined and codified and delimited. And I think that's very much the situation that we have in Gandhara in that period concerned. Mm. And going off the dates uh, that you previously mentioned, I assume that this is after the period of pre-sectarian Buddhism, especially with the, the Mahayana texts that you uh, that you said were discovered within the documents. Um, can we say that they were affiliated with one school or another? Or... What was the situation then? Yeah, uh, the sectarian affiliation is is a sticky business in the history of Buddhism. The tradition uh, tells us that there were 18 Nikayas, uh, schools or traditions. Um, uh, the textual literature such as we have doesn't line up uh, very clearly with those 18 schools. What we look at, I mean, historians of Buddhism look first at the inscriptions. And of those 18 schools, a minority, maybe half or less than half, are actually represented in inscriptions. Um, when I say represented in inscriptions, what I mean is typically these inscriptions from Gandhara and other parts of the Buddhist world uh, record donations um, by be by kings and royalty or just by ordinary followers. Uh, and uh, they often usually specify that this is a gift to the acharyas of such and such a school. 
Um, for Gandhara, we have references to uh, five, approximately five different schools in various inscriptions from the Gandhara region. It's very hard to line these up with um, particular, with specific uh, schools. Um, there is uh, one major exception, which is that we do have evidence that some of this Gandhari material was connected with the Dharmaguptaka school. Uh, that's because, uh, mainly because the manuscripts were found inside a clay pot, as I mentioned earlier on, and the clay pot actually has one of these donative inscriptions, and it says right on the pot, uh, this is uh, donated to the Dharmaguptaka the Acharyas of the Dharmaguptaka school. So that's a pretty good clue, but it's not proof. We also have in one of the manuscripts inside that pot is a commentary on a sutra called the Sangiti Sutra, one of the very important uh, sort of fundamental sutras, or foundational sutras, they're sometimes called. Uh, and the way that commentary is constructed is very different from the Sanskrit and the Pali versions of the Sangiti Sutra, but it's almost identical to the Chinese versions of, version of the Sangiti Sutra. And that Chinese version is known to have belonged to the Dharmaguptaka school. So that's a kind of the confirmation that this batch of manuscripts, which is not the whole uh, corpus by any means, but that it belonged to the Dharmaguptaka school. Um, but we have very little clarity on the many other uh, manuscripts as far as their school affiliation is concerned. At a guess, um, they're likely to be connected with Sarvasti Badin school because that was very prominent in, uh, in Bandhara, as we know from inscriptions. Uh, but broadly speaking, the lining up the schools and the uh, manuscripts in Bandhara is a sticky business. And have there uh, have any other Buddhist Gandhari texts been found since the initial discovery in the nineties? Yes, yeah. Um, uh, this has been ongoing. Um, the first group, as I mentioned, was purchased by the British Library in uh, nineteen ninety-four, I believe, or nineteen ninety-five. Um, so that was a group of a couple of dozen plus manuscripts. Since then, there have been five uh, comparable um, collections have become available, have been uh, bought by institutions or individuals and made accessible to scholars. Uh, so four or five other collections of uh, similar scope, uh, and there seem to be more out there. So uh, the total number is uh, well up in the hundreds, as I said before. And so I think I guess you think it's likely that other texts will come to light in the in the coming decades. Then, or what's your take on that? I wouldn't be surprised. I'm, I'm some I'm somewhat hopeful that there's more where it came from. And I want to ask you: Do you have a favorite text that you personally find uh, interesting or intriguing for whatever reason? In a way, uh, for some reasons, partly sentimental reasons, the the first text that I actually um, identified and understood. Um, is the uh, 
in, in the British Library collection uh, is a, a, a poem, sutra in poem form, uh, called in English the Rhinoceros Sutra. Um, and uh, so that was the, the first text that I really understood, and it was the first text which I published an edition of in 19, uh, 2000. Um, and uh, this is, it's also known in Pali and other versions, um, but it's uh, about leaving the solitary life and uses the, the refrain of every verse is wander alone like the rhinoceros because uh, the Indian rhinoceros is a solitary animal as opposed to herding animals. So the message of it is uh, not, to, not to waste your time in sort of trivial chit-chat and social, unpredictable social engagements, but be by yourself and do pursue uh, um, worthwhile things, meditation, learning, and understanding. Um, so being fairly severe introvert myself, I, I can relate to that. <laughs> Skip this. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and where will your work on these manuscripts take you next? What's your what's on your research agenda? Uh, my agenda is, uh, is long. Um, I, I recently retired. I'm, I'm saying that with air quotes. Uh, because um, my retirement has been something of a failure. Uh, I'm still working full-time or more than full-time, just not getting paid anymore. Uh, and so, you know, part of that, I, I actually sat down on paper, my, my priorities, my bucket list, as it were. And uh, so I, there is uh, something like four books and 15 articles on that bucket list. So, Wish uh, me luck with that, uh, but it's my work is most of it is directly on or governed by uh, manuscripts. These manuscripts, uh, there's one manuscript of this type in the Library of Congress in Washington D.C., which I actually got the opportunity to uh, visit, have a close look at uh, a couple of months ago. So uh, publishing that manuscript, which is called the, the uh, many Buddhist sutras, it's about the, the sequence of Buddhas from um, Dipankara to, uh, to Maitreya, the future Buddha Maitreya. Uh, so I've actually been working on and off on that for too many years. So getting that finally worked out and published is my main priority. And uh, you know, I'm uh, permitting, I have plenty of problems prospects uh, beyond that many other manuscripts i'd like to publish we'll see how that works out hello chris i wish you all the the best of luck with that and i very much look forward to to seeing your work on the on those manuscripts in the future uh, i just want to thank you again for coming on the podcast it's been a real pleasure speaking with you you've been listening to new books and buddhist studies with alex carroll if you're interested in learning about other new books and Buddhist studies, head over to newbooksnetwork.com or search for New Books Network wherever you get your podcasts. Audio used with permission from Musique Delicieuse and is taken from the song Small Flower by Para Furcuva.